6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. that the creator of the universe would put himself in a position where he could die. Wow. We don't, we don't, we, it's, that's part of the gospel. Paul defines it such in the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. And after his resurrection, he changes again. He's no longer limited to four dimensions as we are. But at least 11, maybe more. He's, he's, he changed to immortal man. So from not being a man at all, to being a mortal man, to being an immortal man. But he, he wasn't in that sense, in, in, in a, in a uh, physiological sense. He's not the same. And so let's not, don't misapply that verse. He's, he, he changed in some very profound ways. Anyway, moving on to verse 9. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which, were not, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. So, divers and strange doctrines. Divers means um, diverse, in other words. In other words, in contrast to the unity of sound doctrine. And that's been the emphasis of the writer from chapter 1 through chapter 10. That we have unity that this whole program of the priesthood, the Levitical priests, the Mosaic law, even though it's now behind us, it's part of a unified strategy of God's plan of redemption. And when he says strange here, means doctrines that are not found in Scripture. Boy, you know, you, you, you see the strangest stuff come through the Christian community. Gold dust and all kinds of, these things come and go. Well, how do you know what's real and what isn't? Very simple. Is it in the Scripture? If it's not in the Scripture, I'll pass. I'll pass. Doesn't mean it's not true. I'm not going that far. But I'm not interested. If, it's not, if you can't show me in the Scripture, be my guest. See you later. Is it in the Scripture? Don't be carried about with divers and strange doctrines. Be established with grace, and not with meats which have not profited them that have occupied therein. Any teaching that is not based on Scripture, no matter how spiritual the movement may appear to be, is, in my mind, suspect. And I suggest to you, in Paul's mind, is suspect. Not saying it's evil, but it's certainly suspect. Okay, we said there are three characters of good teachers. Proclaim biblical truth, they're men of faith, and they live spiritual lifestyle. Terrific. Here are three characteristics of false teachers. And you can see them every day on television. They promote false and diverse doctrines. It's astonishing what is being promoted. And I guess it's not astonishing when you realize that it's big money involved. Big money involved. 
And most of them emphasize the external rather than the internal. For example, like eating certain meats or, or, or what have you. Their teaching fails to produce effective spiritual results. And it's interesting how you, it, it occupies the news in this location or that location. I won't mention specifics because I'm not here to point to any particular fingers. But it isn't long before it evaporates and is now a new buzz somewhere else, left and right. And we continue, verse 10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Now what he's alluding to here, you see, is it was the, the privilege of the priests to partake in what was going on. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Now here, the word altar here is a word that means the whole burnt offerings which stood in the court of the priests in the temple of Jerusalem and the food that was upon the altar. You see, when, they, when, you did, when you did an offering, the priest would offer it on the altar, but they had a participation in that. We have a participation, he's pointing out, that they can't participate in. See, the food that was there was part of the support of the Levitical priests. Okay? Now, that altar has been replaced. Believers have an altar to which those who are still trusting the tabernacle have no right. See, bear in mind, keep in mind, the, the, the reader here is a Jewish person who is flirting with the idea of going back to Judaism. They've left Judaism, baptized in Christ. They are Christians. But they're getting abused. They're losing their property. They're being persecuted. And they're thinking about going back and at least pretending they're back in the, getting back in that system to get the pressure off. And, the, and uh, the writer here is emphasizing you don't have that option. And that's what we dealt with, in, especially in uh, ch chapter 6 and chapter 10 and so on. Okay. But as you, by virtue of their service in the tabernacle, they're still bringing blood sacrifices, which shows that they have not trusted in Jesus as the final sacrifice. Okay. This also tells you, by the way, it's still going on, which means this was written prior to AD 70. There is now only one sacrifice as far as the Christian is concerned. Jesus Christ on the cross. To participate in these other rituals is to deny that. Therefore, it is uh, un un uh, uh, it's blasphemous. There's only one food, not the stuff that comes from the altar, Jesus himself. So the writer reminds the readers that while normally priests could partake and eat of sin sacrifice, there was one sin sacrifice the high priest could not eat. He's going to zero in here, even within the Levitical system. Many people don't realize this. And that's the sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the once-a-year program, that even the high priest could not partake of that. He was the one that did it all, that what part of his... Um, preparation to actually be able to enter the Holy of Holies, yes, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. Okay? The high priest could not eat the sacrifice, but the believer can partake of the spiritual food, Jesus. Jesus is the final Yom Kippur sacrifice. He's going to build this a little bit here. The believer has a greater privilege than most, the most privileged, the most privileged person in the Old Testament was the high priest. You as a believer have even a greater privilege than he has. These Jewish believers have everything Judaism has and more. Why? Because Jesus is superior. That's what we went through the first seven chapters of this epistle, building brick by brick. 
that foundation. Jesus appeared to the three pillars of Judaism. Going on about these offerings. The bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought in the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Many people don't realize that. They're burned outside the camp. And by the way, something that mo many rabbis don't realize. What? They were outside the camp. What side of the camp? If you read carefully in the book of Leviticus, it's on the north side of the camp. Where is the garden tomb against Jerusalem? On the north side. There are many Bible-believing Christian Messianic Jews, rabbis, that sell the idea they believe the cross was on Mount of Olives. And they have their reasons, and I won't go into all that here. But they overlook the fact that the whole program was to be north of the, outside the camp to the north. Anyway. The high priest was burned outside, without, that is outside the camp. It was not burned on the altar like other sacrifices. The body and the remains were taken outside the camp and burned in their entirety. It's Leviticus 16, 27, and other places. The sacrifice could not be consumed for food. Burning the Yom Kippur offering outside the camp of Israel portrayed the removal of sin was the idea. Okay? Neither the high priest nor the people could partake of that. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered where? Outside the gate. Okay? Wherefore, Jesus also. In other words, this is based on the previous statement. So the author is going to play with two words here. Camp, meaning the camp of Judaism, and gate, meaning the city gate of Jerusalem. In both cases, it fits. The place where Jesus suffered was located outside the gate. Jesus suffered outside. He died outside the city walls of Jerusalem. The Yom Kippur sacrifice was burned outside the camp of Judaism. Those who stayed inside the camp of Judaism could not eat it. So Paul, what Paul is essentially saying to the, the, the Jewish believer is, don't stay inside. You know, you're entitled to go outside, so to speak, see? The writer's point is that the adherents of the temple are excluded from the privileges of the heavenly altar. Astonishingly enough. Jesus suffered outside the gate. He suffered and died outside Jerusalem for the purpose that he, what? Might sanctify the people. The means was through his own blood, not animal blood. Since Jesus is outside the camp, he's there to receive his people and they should go outside the camp to receive him. Don't stay in the camp, come out of that. That's really the thrust of what the writer is saying here. And by the way, this also gives you some feeling for why the early Jewish uh, establishment hated Paul. Hated Paul. Um, he was a terrorist. Remember, he killed all the Christians. But then when Jesus converts him to Christianity, he then uh, um, is the, the, the worst nightmare for the non-Christian Jewish community, the leadership community. And those traditions carry to today. There are many Messianic fellowships that love the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't really want to have anything to do with Paul's writings. I can understand why. They're rather indicting. For now, this entails going outside the camp of Judaism. Later, it will also entail going outside the city gate of Jerusalem. Let's go to verse 13, 14. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him, without the camp, outside the camp, Bearing his reproach. 
They're all mad at Jesus. They're going to be mad at you too. Okay, bear that reproach because it's his reproach. For here, we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. In other words, we're, we're not committed to this Jerusalem. We're committed to a city that's yet to be established, right? Let us go forth, therefore, unto him. And by the way, it's in present tense. Let us keep going outside to him. It's not once and for all. It's a continual thing. See, it's present tense. It's continuing. It's not past tense. It's continuous. Jesus is outside the camp of Judaism. Even now, the reader should be on their way outside the city, out of the camp, abandoning the city. And they should go forth unto Christ. He's what it's all about. And by the way, the author has a sense of urgency here. Anyway, Jerusalem is destined to be destroyed. And that's what we're going to read about uh, in the next session. Now they're to go outside the camp of Judas and bearing his reproach, and later they will need to go outside the city of Jerusalem to save their lives. Because within two years, the, the war with Rome will start from 66 to 70 AD. In those four years, a million and a half men, women, and children will be slaughtered by the Romans. Not one Christian. I'll show you why in the end here. The readers must identify with his rejection. Since Jesus is outside the camp, he's still out there ready and waiting to receive his people. The Jewish believers need to keep from going back into the camp of Judaism. They need to go outside the camp to identify with Jesus. And for now, Jewish believers need to abandon the religion that rejected the Messiah. As long as they stay inside the camp, they cannot partake of the privileges of the heavenly altar. You see, he's, he's, he's hammering this. Okay. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. In other words, the sacrifice of praise and actions rather than the, the facade that's going on. See, believers are fellow priests. Did you realize that? We're fellow priests. And the job of a priest is to offer the sacrifice of praise to God, to worship God for who he is and for what he does. You know, we should not let a day go by where we don't pause to praise him for who he is. I, I, I find that uh, an essential prayer, thanking God for who he is, that we have a God that is that loving. There are other people that have, are worshiping gods that are not like that. Allah, the God of the Muslims, is he can do anything. Read that capricious, untrustworthy. Islam points out that you can never be sure of your salvation in Islam. Never. We have a God that delights in making and keeping his promises, a very different kind of guy. What a, what a great God we have. The living God is real but he also has attributes that are precious. We should worship him for who he is and what he does. Do good and communicate, forget not. We're called to perform kindly services and sharing. Those are sacrifices. You're doing the equivalent of sacrificing God by doing those things. Verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. All of the privileges believers have 
do not release them from being obligated to spiritual oversight. Whereas they ought to remember their past rulers, they also ought to obey the present ones. Submit to them because submission shows obedience. Submission shows obedience. Call to submission. What do you mean by that? See, the leaders that are, respon- are responsible to watch over the moral and doctrinal health of the congregation, because they're shepherds, in effect. The leaders will someday have to give an account for their stewardship of that leadership at the judgment seat of the Messiah. Boy, are there going to be some shook pastors when they fully appreciate that they weren't diligent in what they were teaching, they weren't diligent in their responsibilities. Scary stuff. The leaders would like to exercise their ministry with joy, not with grief. And a lack of submission is unprofitable for the rebels because they too will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. It escalates. Well, let's get to verse 13 and 18. It has a little surprise in it. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Pray for us, he says. Doesn't sound like a big deal, does it? But you know what that tells you? That's another indication is written by Paul. Do you know that no other epistle writer asks to be prayed for? Not that they don't welcome it, but that's not, Paul's the one that's distinctive that way. Pray for us. Only Paul solicits personal prayer in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, and of course here. Subtle point, I wouldn't build a big court case on it, but it's interesting. Again, it makes it feel Pauline. But incidentally, the language in the Greek is very emphatic. The exhortation is a specific prayer request for a specific thing to get the release of the writer. The writer is in prison. Pray for us, for we trust that we have good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. He's praying that you would pray so I can come sooner to see you. I'm in prison right now. Right? That's why I believe this is one of the prison epistles. I haven't quite, you know, just, just a view I have, okay? May not be right. Then we get to the benediction. Probably thought we'd never get here, didn't you? The benediction, two verses. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Nine statements there. In this benediction, he reaffirms his own confidence that the God of peace can meet your present trials and present needs on the basis of what? A new covenant, which gives them a sure standing. He makes nine statements in this benediction. Now, the God of peace. In other words, he's a God of, he'll answer the need for peace in the midst of whatever trials or inner turmoil you're experiencing. That brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. That's the second of the nine. The point of this phrase is that it shows God's If he can do that, he can do whatever you need. He brought back Jesus from the dead. That makes whatever need you have very, very modest in comparison. And the phrase brought up um, signifies the restoration as being made more emphatic by stressing the depths from which Jesus was brought up. It shows the victory was attained after the defeat of death was suffered. 
It wasn't a mock. It was a real death that he was brought from. The dead. The fact that he could raise Jesus from the dead itself shows that he can meet anything you might have. Not just the listener of Hebrews then, the reader of Hebrews today. Our Lord Jesus emphasizes the deity, emphasizes humanity. He's the God-man. He's our Lord and he's Jesus. You see, there's both. That great shepherd, what does that mean? Okay. That's the relationship of the Messiah to the flock, and there are three psalms that amplify this for you. Together, Psalm 22, 23, 24 are the shepherd psalms. The job of the shepherd is what? To meet the needs of the sheep. And he can meet every need that is created by their trials. The suffering savior, the savior is what Psalm 22 is all about. And that correlates with the good shepherd in John 10, first 18 verses. The living shepherd in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and so on. And that correlates with the great shepherd here in these verses. And the exalted sovereign in Psalm 24, that's the chief shepherd. So we've got the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd in Psalm 22, 23, 24. I encourage you to mark those, use them for a devotional time as you're reviewing these notes. Now, the God of peace that brought again from our dead Lord Jesus and the great shepherd of the sheep brought through, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Their needs are met, how? By the blood of the covenant. That's the basis on which he now deals with each of us. That's on the basis of that covenant, a new covenant. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Making you complete, perfect in the sense of being perfected or complete. Okay? and uh, supply, supply whatever's lacking, and to correct anything that's faulty. He's able to do that. He can equip for every good work, make them complete. The word perfect is really the concept of complete. To do his will. That's his purpose. That's God's purpose in equipping you so that you can do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. So... God is working out his own pleasure in the believers. Through Jesus Christ, that's the means by which he does it. And, uh, and, he's, and he's the one that's doing it through this one. To whom be glory, and then there's a praise. Obviously a final exalted praise. Okay. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of everlasting covenant, make you perfect at every good work, to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. There are many churches that close their service for that benediction. Benediction, okay. Five features of maturity summarized here. The scope must be perfection in every good work. The goal is to do the will of the Father. The source is uh, God working in them, which is well-pleasing in his sight. The means is through the Messiah, Jesus. And the end result, of course, is to do what? Glorify God. Anything in your life you're doing that isn't glorifying God is wood, hay, stubble. Hmm? Then you get to verse 22. You thought we threw it, didn't you? And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. You're probably saying, it didn't seem like a few words to me. Huh? Well, first of all, notice, I beseech you, brethren. 
realize, again, throughout this entire epistle, you're reminded again and again that the listener is, they're already believers. They're not unbelievers. I've written to your letter a few words. And he's not saying that they're few in number. What he really means, he could, be, he could continue. There's much more to be said is another way to say the same thing. It's not that this is short. It's certainly not a short little note. But it's just the tip of the iceberg. He could go on much more with many more words is the way we might express the same idea. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. So he's going to come, if he can, with Timothy, if he's released. Okay, together? That's profound. It, it stuns me to see the volume of commentators that choose to attack the idea that Paul wrote this letter. And I'm not saying there isn't a possibility with somebody else, but all the evidence points in one direction from 20 different points of view. There's another confirmation right here. Timothy, he was one of the best known of Paul's companions and fellow laborers. He was evidently one of Paul's own converts. As the apostle describes him as his beloved and faithful son in the Lord. That's Paul's phrase all, through three of his letters. It's evident that his mother Eunice was converted to Christ on Paul's first missionary journey to Derby and Lystra. And it was on the second one that he picks Timothy up and picks him up, takes him along. And Apostle Paul, you know, obviously was pretty impressed with this young guy. And uh, he took and circumcised him so that he might con uh, conciliate the Jews. So his, since his mother was Jewish, um, uh, Paul made sure he was circumcised so it wouldn't interfere with his ministry. And Timothy went with Paul through Phrygia, Galatia, Mysia, and to Troas and Philippi and Berea in Acts 17. Then he follows Paul to Athens and was sent by him with Silas on a mission to Thessalonica in Acts 17 and and we find him in, at Corinth with Paul. And again, notice the apostle, he's not, with, uh, uh, in Ephesus. Then he's sent on to Macedonia. He accompanied Paul afterwards into Asia where he was with him for some time. He, all the way through, who's at his elbow? Timothy. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time. As we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.